0: Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Psalms and find your way to the 51st chapter in the book of Psalms. This section of scripture that we call the Psalms, the ancients called Tehillim. It's an anthology of songs or hymns uh, of God's people Israel that they would use in worship of God. These hymns were used to sing to Him. These hymns were used to reflect on Him hymn h-i-m and further these hymns were used by the holy spirit who inspired ultimately these texts that we have inside of scripture inspires them and animates them and works through them the tehillim the 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 hymns the psalms working through them to transform us i don't know about you but one of the things that i look forward to on any given sunday is to be with god's people hearing god's word ...and experiencing that word doing something in me to to create a clean heart in me... ...to cleanse me, to challenge me, to comfort me. The title of my message this morning is The Purifying Presence of God. In the 51st chapter of the book of Psalms, we read about God's purifying work in our lives. We read specifically about His gracious cleansing of sinners... Speaking of sinners, to give you some context to Psalm 51, it is worth noting that this particular psalm was written by a sinner filled with regret and shame in need of God's purifying presence. Let me give you some context as we get into the text. You have noted on your sermon outline next to Psalm 51, there is a cross-reference of 2 Samuel chapters 1-12 through or what the ancients called Sefer Shemuel. 2 Samuel. These chapters chronicle the rise of the historical figure, David, to be the king of Israel. I need to emphasize that this is historical. This is a matter of history. What you have open in front of you is a text from history. What you have cross-referenced, Second Samuel 1-12, through 12, is a narrative of history. I emphasize this because there are those who love to attack your faith and this book as a mere myth and not history. Well, King David is history. One of the coolest pieces of history for King David is known as the Tel Dan Stell, which was found actually in 1993. Uh, There there have been skeptics for a long time now, but the skeptics had to suck it in 1993 when archaeologist Avraham Biran discovered an inscription stone in the ancient city of Don in the upper Galilee region, northern Israel. Let me show you a picture of the Tel Stan the, the Telstan stel. It's a sizable stone and written on it is a reference to the house of David, of David. And it dates back close to the time of David. I've seen it with my own eyes. It's in, it's in the Israel Museum. Uh, the Israel Museum is one of those places that when you go, you have to spend hours there. And this is an artifact that you just have to stand in front of for a while and just soak it in. Like, this, this is history. David's a real historical figure. Archaeologists have unearthed, uh, in addition to this piece of of history here, they have also unearthed a large stone structure, which archaeologist Eliot Mazar has identified as the palace of King David. And you could go there as well when you go to Israel. By the way, we're still working on our next trip. COVID kind of ruined travel, so we got out of the rhythm, but do, do look forward to that when we do our next Del Rey trip. I could go on with examples of evidence, suffice it to say, What you have in front of you is a piece of real history, written by a real historical figure. Psalm 51 is a look into the diary, or rather the poetry, of the great King David as he is reflecting on a very dark night of the soul. So in 2 Samuel 1-12, through we have the rise of King David. As he rises in his kingship, we see signs of his fall. David was a flawed sinner. In chapters 10 through 12, while Israel is in a military conflict with the Ammonites, instead of being a good king and going to battle, David uses his position to stay home and he uses his power to have sex with the wife, Bathsheba, of one of his commanders, Uriah. Dirty David. Dirty David. I might add to dirty David, violent David. There's a textual case to be made that this sex act was not consensual, but it was rape. Or at the least, it was a use of his power on a helpless woman whose husband was away, leaving her defenseless against a stronger man, not to mention against the king, who could order her death. Speaking which, dirty, violent David ordered her husband's death to try to cover his tracks as Bathsheba was pregnant by him. This is the behavior of a dictator. This is Saddam Hussein type stuff. Not Yahweh's anointed king called to shepherd his promised people. On top of being a violent murderer, an oppressive womanizer, a dirty adulterer, David was a sex sex addict known for his playboyish lust. We read chapters earlier in 2 Samuel 5 about his harem of concubines. David craved flesh. So he's not only like Hussein, he's like... Hugh Hefner mixed with Hussein, all in one guy. Women were, ob- women were objects to him. Now, sure, polygamy was common in the ancient world, but God's word condemns polygamy. It condemns adultery. And it specifically specifies in Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen that Israel's king was to be monogamous. He must not take many wives, Moses proclaimed. David didn't care what... Moses proclaimed, David didn't care what God had said. He cared more for his cravings than God's covenant. In response, God sends the prophet Natan, or as we say, Nathan, to let David know that he was under divine judgment. So in 2 Samuel 12, that child that was conceived from David's adultery or rape, David's son whom he loved, that child becomes sick and dies. David's sin, like all sin, bears its dark fruit, bringing ruin to the one committing it and to those in community with the one committing it. David cries out to God in agony for what his sin has done. We see the weight of his sin crushing him, and this is the context of the psalm. Look at the top of the psalm. In your Bibles, you should have a superscription that that is just above verse 1. For the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. The context here is murder, rape, a victimized woman who has lost her purity, a victimized mother who has lost her son, a a child on the floor lifeless, a childless dead man who loved his wife and his nation, Uriah, a corrupt king of that nation who should protect his commander and the citizens like Bathsheba, a corrupt king whose power and fame had gone to his head, who had walked away from the God who loved him. It's a heavy, heavy context. And it's in this context that this passage takes us to the purifying presence of the powerful, holy, and gracious God, which emotionally is somewhat bipolar, and yet it is where we need to go. When you are in the darkness, the light can seem so overwhelming, and hence it feels bipolar. It feels opposite, because the fact is, we fall so, so, so short of God's glory. The text is written by a man who knew what it was to fall short, so let's get into the opening verses here. Verse 1, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Let's stop here. By way of introduction, I have given you the historical context so that you know when we read that superscription there about Nathan coming to him, you, you understand what has transpired and, and what is going on against the backdrop here. The moral unraveling of David into sin and the divine judgment that is coming upon his home. That's the historical context. Now there's more than historical context that we need to understand the psalm. We also need to have some biblical and theological context. So that said before, expositing these verses and digging into them Uh, I want to give you some biblical theology so that we can have a theological grid for making sense of David's darkness and his psalm crying out to God in agony for his sin. So three quick points that you have on your outline under context. A, the first point, the reality of the fall of creation and human depravity. We've discussed David's dirt, Hussein Hefner. We, we, We need to understand, though, that he is a product of a fallen world, and we all are. When you read the history of a man in ancient... Uh, you know, text, it's easy to stand over and go, what a, what a dirty, you know, what, a, what? This is gross. We need to remember that we're soiled in this too. When you're in the book of Genesis, the opening of the Hebrew Bible, we see how God's perfect creation was ruined by sin, and that impacts us all. This is what we call the fall. Subsequent to the fall, we see humanity is, is soiled with sin. We see murder, chaos, corruption, dysfunction. The creation itself... It's still full of wonder and beauty. And humanity is, is, is still, you know, the image of God and has the capacity of doing great good things and creative things. And yet it is all by the grace of God, for in the autonomy of man we see complete depravity. The problem is human depravity. Look at Psalm 51 verse 3. See how David understands the problem. See how he describes his sin. He says his transgression is ever before me. That word before is a Hebrew word, neged, which means literally in the presence of. Neged, in the presence of. It's a bit more specific and stronger than just before. Neged, in the presence of. David knows the dirtiness of sin's presence and he longs for the purifying presence of God. David sees his sin against God, that is condemning him, and it's all around him. It's neged, it's in his presence. In fact, it has never not been in his presence, for David sees himself as being born with it. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. The text is clearly showing the reality of being born fallen. It's what theologians refer to as original sin. All humans are born fallen. And hence, we all try to justify ourselves. We, we, we try to justify our sin. We try to you know, blame others for it and the rest. We, we try to justify our sin saying, you know, hey, I was born this way, so it's okay if I do this. Or claiming that we are just being true to ourselves, so it's okay for me to do this. But when people say, I was born this way, so I can do this, it makes it okay. Or I'm just being true to myself, so I can do this, it makes it okay. They need to be reminded that we're born sinners. So appealing to the state of our birth or being true to our desires is not something that compels us if one is trying to convince us that something is true, good, or beautiful. Added with the data of physical sciences, which cannot ground behavior and genetics properly, there is the problem of logic, and which stubbornly proves that we cannot get an ought from an is. That is, being born a certain way, or being a certain way, that is an is, it does not justify or ground an ought. This is a category fallacy. The fact is, what we ought to be and what we are are often not the same. The point here is that before us in verse 5, we see that humanity has a problem. The origin of sin is something that we're born with. No human is without it. This is why we must be born again. This is why we must be born again. This is why when we hear Jesus, specifically of speaking of new birth and new life, we see that, that's what we need. We need to be born again. Apart from the grace of God... We would be left in our sin, and we would be left utterly wild, like wild animals. And, and sin itself is wild. It will not be tamed by false hopes of pop culture's prescriptions. It is assumed that if we have better education, then we can cure society. Look at these problems. If, if we get more educated, then, then, then we can solve these problems. If, if we get more money, so we throw money at things... Uh, We can solve these problems. Better economics, better education, that will solve the problem. Nazi Germany was quite wealthy and highly educated, and yet that didn't stop millions of innocent Jews from being slaughtered in their demonic delusion. While education and prosperous economics are good, it is powerless over sin. The problem is not going to be solved by better schools, better jobs, Better economy, better insert whatever, you get the idea. Both the educated and the uneducated, the rich and the poor, have sin to contend with, and there is no contending because sin wins every time. Evil infects all. Its effects are everywhere because it is in everyone. There is the saying, we're not sinners because we sin, rather we sin because we're sinners. The heart of the problem with humanity is the problem of the heart which is evidenced by our sin and rebellion against God and His love and His holy law. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is a sinner. He sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and the people of Israel, but ultimately he sees rightly that his ultimate offense is against God, the God who is forever and ever. You see, uh, the penalty then of our sin is determined by the object to which it is done against. And so we can look at David and go, well, I've never done any crazy kinky stuff like that, old pervert. I haven't done anything like this Uriah thing and a harem with concubines and I'm nowhere near that. I said, but yes, but all of our sin is ultimately against God and the object that you sin against is what determines the violation and the punishment. So, for example, I'm not going to go to jail for ripping the legs off of uh, my son Obi's Iron Man doll. You know, ah, take his legs, just rip them off. You know, I might be a a mean dad or something like, go to your room and just snap the legs off his Iron Man. Uh, You go, man, that's bad parenting. But I'm not going to go to jail for it, right? If I'm in the backyard and I get a little ant and I pick its legs off, uh, I'm not going to go to jail for that. Uh, Might make some people at PETA upset, but whatever, you know, same, same act, ripping Iron Man's legs off, ripping the ant off. Now, if I go in the backyard and I rip my dog's legs off, right, I'm going to end up drugged in an asylum, right? Uh, Now, if I ripped off my five-year-old's legs, I'm going to go to jail and I'm going to be in much deeper problem. Same act, the ripping off of legs. I know it's a gross illustration, but follow me. It's the same act, Iron Man, Ant, uh, my puppy, and my son, right? But the object to which it is done against is what determines the punishment. So ripping Iron Man's legs off, who cares? Ripping my son's leg off, have you lost your mind? You deserve to be locked up, key thrown away. What is wrong with you? Because the object that it's done against is what determines the punishment of the crime. And so too, an infinite and everlasting God who is, who is holy and pure and perfect, that we would sin against Him, that's, that's what determines the punishment. Not uh, you know what you did if you're as bad as David or anything like that. We've all sinned against Him and therefore we deserve a punishment that is everlasting as this God is everlasting and eternal. This God stands then ready to judge and His judgment is never unfair. Sure, humans may accuse Him of it, just as vile criminals accuse human courts of being unfair, but it doesn't change the fact. Look back at verse 4. You are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Uh, People will shake their fist. Who is God to send people to hell? Or who is God to judge? He's God, and He's blameless when He judges. God is judge, He is just, so no one escapes His courtroom. We're all guilty, And the psalmist knows the feelings of this. He fears that God Himself will end his life and he faces this harsher judgment of watching his child die. And yet he still acknowledges in this verse the justice of God which leads us to be the justice of the Holy God who stands against sinners. So as we're reading the text, we need to keep in mind the reality of the fall of creation and human depravity. We need to keep in mind the justice of the Holy God who stands against sinners. In church, we, you know, we can amen this. Yeah, God, you know, He's holy and He stands against sinners. In the world, of course, this is an issue of contention. The skeptic will attack God when God judges sin. The skeptic will attack God when he thinks that God is not judging sin the way God ought to. So, for example, when evil rears its head in a particularly undeniable evil way, like, a, say, a school shooting, a skeptic will attack God for not judging or not stopping that shooting. Before answering the skeptic's objection, it is worth noting that the skeptic's beef, that God didn't interrupt and stop this guy's free will choice to do evil, it is ultimately something that the skeptic does not want if he's being honest. Because, I mean, for one thing, it would, be, it would mean the end of skepticism if God interrupted everyone from doing wrong things. You see, the skeptic also never asks where was God when it comes to other issues of morality. The skeptic has to say, where is God when he's sleeping with his girlfriend? Or where is God when he's high as a kite? Or where is God when he's raging with self-righteous anger for, for something sinful? Or, or when, he's, when he's got greed pulsing in his heart? Where is God? No. The invoking of where, of where is God just serves the purpose of pacifying a conscience that fails to see its own depravity and fails to fear the coming judgment of God. God's going to judge. He will end evil and it will be punished severely because he is a holy object to which it is done against. Many people today don't, they're not gonna like it, but it doesn't change the fact. Any more than I might not like what the scale says when I stand on it, but it doesn't change the fact. There's a a truth, and truth is uh, often uh, offensive to us, but it doesn't change the fact that it is true. Strangely, people deny God when he doesn't punish sin. Where was God? And then they deny God when He does punish sin. I can't believe in a God who sends people to hell. They literally damn God if He does and damn God if He doesn't. At the root of this disregard of of logic is depravity, though. Depravity blinds us from seeing what is commonsensical. Depravity makes anorexic souls who think that they are something that they are not, destroying themselves in the quest for something that is not real, And the sad thing is that in all of this denying, there stands a God who's loving and who's ready to forgive. Even the worst of sinners. Even dirty David. In His grace, God saves sinners. He changes undeserving and undesiring hearts. In addition to saving God in His common graces, is also restraining evil. This leads us to the third uh, point of context. The grace of God in restraining sin and saving sinners. Things could be worse. Things could be worse. But God in His grace restrains evil. If He punished evil, none would be left standing. So He restrains and He waits patiently to redeem and rescue sinners from from the wrath that is justly to come upon humanity for sin. Look at this cross-reference here. Psalm 78, verses 37 and 38. For their heart was not steadfast toward Him, nor were they faithful in His covenant. But He, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And he often, and often he restrains his anger and, and did not arouse all of his wrath. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. See his compassion. See God's restraint. See God's patience. This uh, reminds us in the midst of tragedy that God is up to something. He is saving sinners from the wrath that is to come. And in David's case... He's going to lose a son, but in 2 Samuel 12, we see the hope of heaven and reunion for this father and son, and who knows what it would have been like for this child to grow into adulthood in such a dysfunctional context. What I do know is that God is good, and hence I have reason to believe that God rescued that child from a violent, perverse home in the earth to bring that child to heaven not on, the, not on the basis of, of merit, but on the basis of divine grace covering David's doom. So in the midst of evil, we see God moving to restrain and to save sinners by His grace. The chapter begins with David calling on God for His grace. Be gracious to me, O God. David needs grace. If he gets justice, he'll be struck dead too and damned in the afterlife forever to have no reunion with his son, let alone no joy in seeing God's face face to face, enjoying God's grace, coming to hear of God's good redemption. In, in, in David, we know the history, through David comes Jesus, the true king of God's people who dies for the people and is coming again to reign on David's own throne forever and usher in God's kingdom in a new heavens and new earth. As David cries out in repentance in these verses, we come to see our gracious God in His heart For us in the midst of our darkest moments. And we see specifically His heart to cleanse. So point one on your outline was context. Point two is cleansing. I picked Psalm 51 to preach today because it speaks of cleansing. And today is Baptism Sunday where we get to see a picture of cleansing. In the Hebrew Bible, there are many examples of cleansing language. In the Hebrew Bible, there's a great deal of imagery about water. God's people, Israel, uh, practiced a lot of water rituals that taught them about their need to be cleansed. In fact, the Hebrews practiced something called mikvah, which marked outsiders, Gentiles, coming into the covenant community with God. When you uh, wanted to enter into relationship with God and His people, you would undergo mikvah. You would be baptized, like in the Jordan River, just like John the Baptist was doing, and this would mark you as belonging to the covenant people of God. So today, as we exposit Psalm 51, and we see this language of cleansing, today when we see three brothers enter into this baptismal pool, and we think of how God has made them brothers in Christ, how how God has joined them to His church. He's done this by cleansing us in His grace, and as they enter those waters, we get to see a picture of what God has done inside of them. We left off at verse 6, and in verse 6 we see our God... And we see the wisdom of God which desires truth within us. Look at verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. The Hebrew wording here emphasizes truth. It says literally, behold, uh, truth you desire within. Now truth is a big deal. The word for truth and the word for faithfulness in Hebrew are used interchangeably. Uh, It communicates accuracy and dependability. The psalmist wants it to be known in the innermost being. I need this to happen deep within me because that's where the problem is. Again, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. I need you to do a work deep in me. Uh, The psalmist doesn't care. David doesn't care about externals. The problem isn't external. It's not out there. It's internal. Dane Ortland correctly notes, the world says the problem is outside of you. The solution is inside of you. The gospel says the problem is inside of you. And the solution is actually outside of you. You see, it's Christ who comes outside of us. It's Christ's blood that is sacrificed outside of us. Inside of us, sin, it's cleansed by what he has done outside of us. You see, the gospel, the good news, is that the bad news of sin is not going to win. God has handled it out there, and he's going to take what he has done out there on the cross of Calvary... And He's going to cleanse us inside with it. You see, the Father sent the Son, who is one with the Father. We worship one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father sent the Son to become a human to die for us. And He shed His blood for us. And His blood, like the sacrifices of ancient days, is is a picture of that washing. More than a picture, Christ's blood is actually accomplishing it. Now, David lives before Christ, but he is aware of his need for something outside of him... To come within and to wash Him. This brings us to the next point on the outline. We move from the wisdom of God that desires truth within to the washing of God. The washing of God that brings us His joy. Look at verse 7. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, The whiteness of snow is an image of of sin being forgiven. It's it's pure, it's crisp, it's white. it hasn't been touched, you see. Uh, it, it's an interesting uh, reality about the geography of Israel. It's a, lot like, it's a lot like L.A. You can, in L.A., at the right time of the year, start your morning on the beach on the hot sand, surfing surfing, and doing whatever at the beach, and you can jump in a car in a couple hours, be up in Big Bear, kicking it in the snow. Israel in the north, in Hermon, Mount Hermon, you have snow. And then you have down, you know, in the South, desert. It's it's crazy. It's it's like L.A. in that regard. So he says, you know, you you all, you know, you've been to Mount Hermon, like you've seen the snow, how pure it is. That's a picture of what God does when he saves us. Sin is image as filth. Forgiveness is image as washing and purifying. The psalmist prays for forgiveness. Purify me with hyssop. The verb purify is the intensive form of the verb. Uh, it, is, it is intense. Hyssop, a small brush plant that was used for sprinkling water or, or blood on things in religious ceremonies in Israel and the temple, the tabernacle, for atonement and purification. It is not ritual purification the psalmist prays for, though. It is actual inner purification, as verse 6 speaks of the innermost being. And in this next verse, we've read 7. Uh, Look at verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. The washing of God breaks into us, birthing joy. David sees God's hand in all of this. He describes God as breaking bones. And he also describes a rejoicing that comes through this breaking. It is idiomatic for the pain that he is feeling brought on by his sin and the presence of God's grace and the breaking then turns into rejoicing. Some scholars suggest that the Hebrew idiom here that could be rendered in English is let the bones dance which you have broken. The grace of God makes the undeserving sinner dance. The grace of God likewise makes holy angels dance. Recall what Jesus said in Luke 15 verse 10. I'll put it in front of you. There is what? Joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This joy, this dancing, is an appropriate response of worship before the grace of God which leads to the next point: the worship of the holy God who renews hearts. Now, the stanza here is not presumptuous. David wants his heart to have joy and gladness. Verse eight was a cry out to God: "God, you make it happen. In sin, I'm, I'm powerless to produce this kind of fruit in my own doing. I'm dirty. You know, uh, we've got you know little kids. My boys, in particular, they're just they're dirty little kids." And our backyard is, uh, is full of dirt and dog dookie and all kinds of stuff. And they go back there and they play and then they want to run in the house. You're like, hey, stay in the backyard. We got to hose you off. It's okay. I'll wash myself off. No, you're just smearing the mud around. Like you can't do that. That's not how you get yourself clean. Something external needs to wash you. And, and, and with that, as David's acknowledging that, he's like, I can't cleanse myself. David longs to have his heart renewed. He longs to be in a right place so that he's not not overwhelmed by guilt and the darkness on the ground weeping, but he's actually on his feet jumping in joy and worshiping God. He sees God as holy, so he calls on God to hide his face from his sins and give him a new clean heart. Look at verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. David wants this to happen now. He's, he's tired of the darkness. He wants change. A lot of people put off this kind of repentance. They'll say, you know, I'll do it later. I'm busy having fun. I, I've got a little more, you know, Hussein Hefner stuff to do, you know. And then I'll, I'll tell God I'm sorry and I'll, I'll put it off. People will come to, come to church on Sundays. You'll hear the call to repent and believe. You'll hear the call to be baptized, and you go, I, I'm, I'm going to do that later. I'll do that one day, you see. Now there's a world of difference between thinking about doing it one day as opposed to making it day one. See, David has a day one mentality. This is day one. I'm tapping out. Today is the day. Forgive me. Change me. Day one. Tomorrow's day two. Tomorrow's day three. Tomorrow's day four, and I'm going to keep walking with you. Having a day one mentality is so different than having a one day mentality. And it is a work of God. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities. This is day one, I'm getting right with you, God. Dr. John Gay, he was one of my Hebrew professors in seminary, he has a wonderful commentary on the Psalms, and he points out how verse 7 and 9 through 9, which we just read, forms a chiastic structure. Chiasms are used in the Hebrew Bible to place an emphasis on the center point. And look at what Dr. Golden Gay is, is modeling here for you to see that I turned into a nice PowerPoint with an arrow. You are faithful. The emphasis in the text is on the faithfulness of God. His faithfulness to do what? To cleanse us. He's faithful to do what? To cleanse you. Verse 10, day one, look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We're born in sin. We have dead hearts. We need new hearts. Jesus spoke of being born again with this similar image. We need hearts that are cleansed and a renewed spirit within. The spirit within is the core of man. This is not a request or a superficial or surface level change. This is deep transformation. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The heart is the deep core. Likewise, the mention of the spirit within me. That's getting at the core of man. David knows he can't do this without God. Indeed, more bluntly, he is not looking to God to even come alongside him and be his partner. Jesus, take the wheel. Like, what are you doing? Uh, Jesus, take the wheel. What are you doing? No, he's not partnering with you. You have nothing to bring to the table. You can't do anything. God is the one who has to do the work. And if God doesn't, there is no hope. So he continues, verse 11, Do not cast me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David is offering a prayer of reliance. In desperation, David doesn't, David, David doesn't want God to leave him. I need your purifying presence. That said, this is um, a very misunderstood verse here, verse 11. So I need to say something about it. It's a very misunderstood verse. And so a quick theological digression. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, we, we, are never from God, we are never outside of God's presence, okay? Even those in hell, because technically God is omnipresent, so there is no place where he is not. I hear people say that. Hell is where God is not. Well, what? You just took away God's omnipresence. No, God is everywhere. There's nowhere where he's not. David knows this. David knows that God is everywhere. So then why is he saying, like, don't take your presence from me? What's going on here? Well, David's not writing a systematic analytic theology here. This is poetry. It's a motive. It captures his feelings. Further, David is under a different covenant than we are on this side of the cross. We are in the new covenant, but this was written under the old covenant. And in the old covenant, the work of the Spirit was different than in the new covenant. In fact, the sign of the new covenant was the coming of the Spirit in a unique way, which happened in Acts chapter 2. In the old covenant, the Spirit would indwell people... ...come upon people, but the Spirit would come and go for specific tasks. Mind you, under the Old Covenant, Jesus himself taught, though, that all humans need to be born again. As I've referenced in this message already, he said, you have to be born again of the Spirit. And he said that under the Old Covenant. You see, in the days of the old, people who were saved were those who had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And that work of saving them, what we call regeneration, didn't come or go... David's regeneration isn't in question here. That lasting work of the Spirit isn't in question here. Nevertheless, the empowerment of the Spirit after salvation was distinct in the Old Covenant. As well, the dwelling of the Spirit was distinct in the Old Covenant. You had the tabernacle turned into the temple, and the Holy Spirit dwelled in the temple. And so the people thought about the the Spirit, they thought about the temple, and they thought about that corporate dwelling. Added, David is the king. And in the theology of the Hebrew Bible, the kings were given a special uh, bestowal of the Spirit for the anointing of the king for the ruling of the people. So when David is crying out, don't take your spirit from me, uh, that isn't for us in the new covenant to go, the Holy Spirit comes and goes and you can lose your salvation or something like this. No, this is David the king who is worried because of his corruption that the Spirit will depart from his throne And the nation will come to ruin. Recall the king before David. Who was it? Saul. Recall what happened to Saul. Look at 1 Samuel 16, 14. In 1 Samuel 16, 14, we read, the spirit departed from Saul. You see, the kings had a special uh, impartation of the spirit. This is not us in the new covenant. We don't live in fear that God's spirit is going to depart those of us who are in Christ. The Bible makes that very clear. So, for example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, in the New Covenant, we read, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The dwelling of the Spirit is permanent because salvation is permanent. This is why we get baptized as believers just once. Once we have come to saving faith in Christ, we see baptism because it is a picture to proclaim the gift of salvation, which we cannot lose because we did nothing to earn it. Hence, it's a gift. And God is not petty to take back His gifts. Further, He is not impotent or lacking in strength or wisdom to know how to grow the gift that He gives us and to hold us by His powerful Holy Spirit who will never leave us. All of this to say, uh, be careful because I hear people misuse this verse. We are under a new covenant, so we don't read this verse freaking out that God's going to take His Spirit from us. We have the context here. We have the history and the role of the king here. This is not our fate. The context is different. Nevertheless, we are reminded of the weight of sin and the role of the Spirit in the king of Israel, David. As new covenant people, we cannot help but to think of Jesus, the king of Israel, the descendant of David, who was anointed by the Spirit. The Spirit came upon him, recall, and presented him as the king of God's people. And in this case, this child of David, Jesus, lives righteously, And the Spirit does not leave him. He's he's one with the Spirit and one with the Father. And he dies for our sins in our place. And the Father sent him to do that. The Father sent him to die. Without him in this work, we would be left like David, crying, don't take the Spirit from us. But now we are sealed with the Spirit and adopted into the family of God who continues this work of salvation in us. Okay, let's move on and, and wrap... Get back into these verses. The next point is the work of God deep within the sinner. Draw your eyes at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. Conversion is a turning away of sin and a turning to God. God does this through the ministry of his word being taught. I'll teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted. Verse 14 Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. God delivers the guilt, and then in salvation, he brings joy. Verse 12 speaks of the joy of your salvation. And verse 14 continues in that joy. O God, the God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Oh Lord, my lips and my mouth may declare your praise. God gets the praise. God, God is not working in salvation for the praise of man. He works for his glory. He does what he does for his own glory. God does not sit in heaven like an insecure teenager trying to figure out how to get more likes on Instagram. Let's be honest, we adults do that too. I only got five likes. Um, God's not insecure. Like me, like me. He's not trying to get the creation to like Him. No, God is on the throne in complete confidence, lacking nothing. He's perfect. He's not seeking worshipers because he's, he's insecure. He's not seeking worshipers because He's some socio-psychopath who has a high view of Himself and freaks out if people don't like Him. He's not one of these trophy kids who's like, I didn't get a, I didn't get a ribbon. He's like, yeah, because you came last, bro. And that's how that works. So... <laughs> Sorry you were raised differently, but that's not how it works. God's God's not looking to get a participation ribbon. God is God. God is God. The Westminster Catechism opens with this question. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, listen to me. Many Christians think you know when you start talking about glorifying god and being god centered many christians say yeah we like totally we should live for his glory we should be god centered but then when you talk about hey but you realize like we should be god centered cuz god is god centered uh, many christians have never even thought about this we should be christ exalting right we should be exalting christ because christ exalts himself listen this is so important i've been pastoring 25 years plus, and what i found is that the depth of a person's centeredness on God is shown often in the depth of their understanding of God's own God-centeredness. Here's the question. Follow me. Do you rejoice in God's unwavering commitment to uphold and display His glory? Do you rejoice in God's God-centeredness? Or are you God-centered only because deep down you believe God is man-centered? So that you suppose God-centeredness is really kind of man-centeredness. That, that you know, he's, he's saving because he likes me, you see. Here's the thing. God's God-centeredness will reveal if our belief in the glory of God is real or not. Is our supposed God-centeredness just a cover for wanting myself at the center and wanting salvation to be about me, you see? And the use of God to just endorse, uh, you know, or sort of cover up for something that we wouldn't otherwise say out loud. Don't miss it. God's chief end is His glory and that's why our chief end is His glory. We were made to worship Him and glorify the triune God. And of course sin messes that up as we've discussed, but God is gracious and He's loving and He cleanses up our dirtiness and He forgives us and He glorifies Himself through this. God is unchangeable. God is sure. God is perfect. And so, banking on him gives us a foundation that we are secure, which brings us to the final verses. Let's wrap this up as we see the walls of God's city giving people safety and sanctuary. Look at verse 18. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. So, David's in this dark moment. He's got judgment, he's got guilt, he's got all this stuff going on. He's crying out to God. He's been confronted by the prophet Nathan. He feels the weight of his sin. It's, he's doing day one with God. I want to get right with you. He's crying out to him. And now he's crying out on behalf of the city, the people, the nation, because he realizes that his behavior as the king is going to affect the rest of the nation. I could insert all sorts of political commentary, uh, you know, here, but, uh, you know, when you, our presidents, when they make decisions or no decisions, it impacts us, Right? It impacts what's going on in the nation, what happens at the top. And so so David knows that, and now he's crying out, like, build the walls of Jerusalem, help us, protect us. Restore Jerusalem to her former glory. He speaks of Zion. The biblical uh, imagery dictionary, it's a wonderful resource, has this entry that Zion is a symbol or a metaphor for the historical city of Jerusalem, but behind this metaphor lies a complex cluster of interlocking themes of immense theological significance. In various parts of the scripture, we find the following concepts associated with the city of Zion. The temple is Yahweh's dwelling place. The covenant people of God. Both as the apostate Israel under judgment and the purified remnant who inherit God's blessings. The royal Davidic kingship leading to the idea of Messiah. The world center from which God's law will be promulgated. And to which the Gentile nations and the world flow. The renewed heavens and earth where peace and prosperity will reign. David says, Zion! Zion! The people, the, the land, the promises, like all of it. Oh, God, you make good on this. Verse 19, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered to your altar. The temple, when used properly, pointed worship worshipers to gospel pictures of sacrifice and the ultimate sacrifice that would come in Christ and, and the work of the Spirit that would give us these humble hearts so that we can express worship rightly with righteous sacrifice. The psalmist begins the chapter with the heaviness of his own sin and then he moves to his people seeing a restoration on himself and the people of God in the land, in the temple. The material temple and visible sacrifices would be a visible sign of God's covenant with his people. This is how it was was ultimately so radical when Jesus comes and he prophesies that the temple would be toppled And he comes and cleanses the temple we see inside of the Gospel accounts. He cleanses it. Why? Because it was compromised. And it too would come under judgment. That is exactly what happened to David. He was compromised. He comes under judgment. But thankfully the God who rightly judges him is a gracious and good and loving God. And so all can have day one with him. Because his mercies are new every morning. Okay, so in conclusion, Today is Baptism Sunday. I have exposited Psalm 51. I've used the imagery and the language of the text of washing to talk about how God washes us as sinners, which the act of baptism pictures, when we watch uh, people get into the water, they go under the water, they come up out of the water. It's, it's a symbol of cleansing. More than just a symbol of cleansing, for us on this side of the cross and the New Covenant, It's a symbol of union with Christ. Going under the water reminds us of His burial. We are are being united with Him in His death. Coming up out of the water reminds us of His resurrection. We are being united with Him in the resurrection. This act of cleansing isn't something that we had coming. It wasn't something that we did within ourselves. It is a gift from a God who didn't have to do it final points here, God is holy and thus naturally distant from sinners. He he didn't have to do it. He's he's holy. He's far from sin. He doesn't have to do it. And we can't shake our fist and go, you know, give me a trophy. No, you, you did nothing to get a trophy. You don't get a trophy. Save me. You did nothing to be saved. You made a mess of the life I gave you. I have every right to hold you accountable for this. And here's the good news, that God is gracious and thus He freely cleanses sinners. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me. You know, hyssop was used in the Passover celebration to apply the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts as the angel of death passed over homes with God's judgment. Jesus on the Passover gathers His disciples together and takes from the unleavened bread, right? And says, this is my body. And takes from the wine at the table, from the Passover celebration. This is my blood. In just a moment, you're going to come to the communion table and you have those pictures. The new Passover in Christ before us. In just a moment, we will see the picture as well of baptism. These symbols of the table and of, of baptism are reminding us that God is gracious and He freely cleanses sinners and that anyone can come and have a day one with Him. Again, day one juxtaposed with one day. Don't think to yourself... Well, one day I'll, I'll, I'll ask him to forgive me. No, no, do it now. God is, next point, joyful, and he's happy to renew sinners. In thinking of baptism, we see Jesus entered the waters of baptism. Now, we enter the waters of baptism to give an outward sign of an inward reality, namely that we were washed of our sins. Jesus is without sin. He's the sacrifice for sin. He has no sin. So why is he getting in the waters of baptism? He gets in our dirty waters to take our filth upon Himself. He gets into the waters of baptism in solidarity with us to say, those waters that you have entered, I will enter them and I will take your dirty water upon Myself and I will cleanse you through My blood. This brings us to the final point that God is worthy and thus we worship Him and we share His good news. Baptism is a proclamation. You're standing before people and you're saying, I, I had a one day... I had a, a day one with Jesus. I got, I got right with Him and He forgave me. And this guilt, it's lifted. This shame, it's lifted. I've been purified with Him. And you're standing in front of His people and saying, I, I've said yes to Him. And I'm symbolizing what He has done. It's an act of proclamation. Now further, all of us have this act of proclamation. We have proclamation in the ordinances of communion and baptism, but we have the command of proclamation to go and share with people about the purifying presence of God and what He has done for us in Christ. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song and have communion. Uh, me and uh, our, th- our three guys are going to get into the water and uh, after we sing a song, we'll, we'll pause and we'll watch some baptisms and then we'll have a final song to conclude the service. If you would bow your heads and hearts. Let me seek the Lord for His blessings. Lord, bless us as we have heard Your Word. Lord, may Your Word have a purifying effect in us. We thank You that You have cleansed us, not with hyssop, but with the blood of Your Son, who has washed us and made us as white as snow. Lord, I pray that all who hear this message uh, today would come and know the washing power of the blood of Your Son. We come now to the communion table to picture Uh, His blood and His body. We come now to sing praise to You for You alone are worthy. You, the God-centered God who glorifies Himself through His works. And Lord, we're so thankful to be included in those works that You would see see fit to wash us and cleanse us, to love us and forgive us. We praise You, Jesus. Receive these songs of worship or offering. Move through the work of communion and baptism today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.